Waco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the Janet McCabe confirmation hearing. That's coming up later in the program, but now for your environmental headlines. Rutgers University, New Jersey's largest institution of higher learning, has decided to divest from fossil fuels and to prohibit new investments in that industry. About 5% of Rutgers' $1.6 billion endowment is currently invested in fossil fuels. Rutgers President Jonathan Holloway said of the move, quote, This decision aligns with Rutgers' goals to advance public health and social justice. Approving a policy of divestment from fossil fuels is a significant expression of the values of our institution and our broader community. End quote. According to the new policy, the definition of fossil fuel investments is investments in any company or fund, the primary business of which is the exploration for or extraction of fossil fuels, or the primary business of which supports that industry. The ban on new investment in fossil fuel corporations starts immediately. By the end of one year, Rutgers will have to divest from passive index funds that have fossil fuel connections and reinvest in environmentally friendly versions of those funds. It will have 10 years to end all its current private fossil fuel connections. A committee of students, faculty, and staff had urged the university to divest. The student group Endowment Justice Coalition was behind the committee. The New York Times reports on an issue many coastal communities face. Bobby Outen, a county manager in the Outer Banks, North Carolina, delivered two pieces of bad news at a recent public meeting. Avon, a town with a few hundred full-time residents, desperately needed at least $11 million to stop its main road from washing away. And to help pay for it, Dare County wanted to increase Avon's property taxes, in some cases by almost 50%. Homeowners mostly agreed on the urgency of the first part. They were considerably less keen on the second. People gave Mr. Outen their own ideas about who should pay to protect their town. The federal government, the state government, the rest of the county, tourists, people who rent to tourists. The view for many seemed to be anyone but them. Mr. Outen kept responding with the same message. There's nobody coming to the rescue. We have only ourselves. Quote, We've got to act now, end quote, he said. The risk to tiny Avon from climate change is particularly dire. It is, after all, located on a mere sandbar of an island chain in a relentlessly rising Atlantic. 
But people in the town are facing a question that is starting to echo along the American coastline as seas rise and storms intensify. What price can be put on saving a town, a neighborhood, a home where generations have built their lives? Communities large and small are reaching for different answers. Officials in Miami, Tampa, Houston, San Francisco, and elsewhere have borrowed money, raised taxes, or increased water bills to help pay for efforts to shield their homes, schools, and roads. Along the Outer Banks, where tourist-friendly beaches are shrinking by more than 14 feet a year in some places, according to the North Carolina Division of Coastal Management, other towns have imposed tax increases similar to the one Avon is considering. Soon, county officials will vote on whether or not Avon will join them. Recently, it has come to light that the largest manufacturer of DDT, a pesticide that Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, exposed, and that was banned in the U.S. in 1972, dumped as much as a half million barrels of DDT waste in the deep ocean, 3,000 feet under the sea, off Santa Catalina Island in California. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, has pressured numerous state and federal agencies to make the issue a priority. She said, quote, These barrels are full of toxic chemicals that could be causing illness among ocean wildlife and even humans. Ignoring it or claiming it's just too difficult to deal with is not an option. A new expedition has been launched to uncover and map the location of the barrels. The expedition is taking place on one of the nation's most technologically advanced research ships. 31 scientists and crew members are spending two weeks exploring almost 50,000 acres of the seafloor with two high-tech robots that will use sonar to investigate the seafloor, obtaining high-resolution information that will enable a team of oceanographers, engineers, and hydrographers to decide where to send the robots back down for more detailed photographs. The map the scientists make from the data they gather will help them determine where to focus more sediment and chemical studies. It's way too early to think about cleaning up the mess, but ultimately remediation will be the aim. The New York Times has reported on the challenges of meeting Biden's goal of all electric vehicles by 2050. There are a total of 250 million cars, SUVs, vans, and pickup trucks on the roads today. The vast majority run on gasoline. Fewer than 1% are electric. Automakers are now shifting to electric vehicles, which could make up one quarter of new sales by 2035, analysts project. But at that point, only 13% of vehicles on the road would be electric. Why? Older cars can stick around for a decade or two. Even in 2050, when electric vehicles are projected to make up 60% of new sales, the majority of vehicles on the road would still run on gasoline. Slow fleet turnover is a major challenge for climate policy. If the United States wanted to move to a fully electric fleet by 2050 to meet President Biden's goal of net zero emissions, then sales of gasoline-powered vehicles would likely have to end altogether by around 2035 a heavy lift. To meet the 2035 goal, every vehicle sold from now until that date would have to be electric, assuming the same 17 million vehicles per year production we currently have. 
Plus, we'd need to have a full number of charging stations installed earlier. It will take a long time for all the existing gasoline-powered vehicles on the road to reach the end of their lifespans. This fleet turnover can be slow, analysts said, because conventional gasoline-powered cars and trucks are becoming more reliable, breaking down less often and lasting longer on the road. The average light-duty vehicle operating in the United States today is 12 years old. Given that only 400,000 electric vehicles are sold each year in the U.S. and that there are few charging stations, the goal of an all-electric fleet by 2050 seems almost impossible. As is typical of policies to mitigate climate change, we've acted too slowly. Petaluma, California is the first U.S. city to ban new gas stations. The unanimous decision by the local city council is the follow-up to a two-year moratorium passed two years ago. The move is a consequence of the city's climate plan, which entails reducing its emissions to zero by 2030 and looks ahead to the future of electric vehicles. The legislation allows gas stations to add electric vehicle chargers and possibly hydrogen fuel cell stations. With a population of 61,000, Petaluma has 16 gas stations and another one recently approved that's yet to be built. Every residence in Petaluma is within a five-minute drive from multiple gas stations, and city officials think that's enough. The bill has other important environmental benefits. Small gasoline spills and leaks from underground storage tanks are common at gas stations and can contaminate stormwater and groundwater with chemicals like benzene, a known carcinogen. That contamination also complicates using former gas station locations for other purposes when the gas stations shut down. About half of the country's brownfield sites, where contamination from a previous development complicates future use of those sites, comes from gasoline pollution from closed gas stations' underground tanks. PBS reports that Elon Musk's Tesla is supersizing its plans to bring its battery technology into the power storage game. Gambit Energy Storage, LLC, a Tesla subsidiary, is building a 100-megawatt energy storage project in Arlington, Texas, outside of Houston. The giant battery will plug into the Texas power grid, providing backup to a system that last month suffered a devastating failure when a severe winter storm knocked generation offline at the same time as demand soared. Tesla introduced its Powerwall home batteries in 2016. This new battery would store enough energy to power 20,000 homes during summer peak hours and is expected to be operational on June 1st. Blackouts are becoming increasingly common as climate change exposes the energy grid's vulnerability and battery-supported microgrids are increasingly seen as a critical backup for life-saving systems. Tesla is building a much bigger battery storage facility in Australia that should be operative by November 2021. There are several concepts for storing energy, and it's not clear which concept will dominate. One that seems very applicable is being built in the UK. It relies on proven technology. Excess energy is spent compressing air, which can be used later to power a generator. One advantage is that no lithium is required. Lithium is not an abundant element. 
Environmentalists are urging members of the U.S. House of Representatives to sponsor the Parks, Equity, and Jobs Act, H.R. 1678. This legislation would help close the gap in nearby nature access for black and brown communities by boosting the Outdoor Recreation Legacy Partnership Program, focused exclusively on increasing equitable access to nearby nature in communities where it is needed most. The Parks Equity and Jobs Act would boost the program with $500 million, which would be a crucial investment to help expand outdoor equity. The act would also provide seasonal and permanent jobs in parks, mitigate the effects of the climate crisis on vulnerable populations, and stimulate the economy through outdoor recreation. It would also make critical upgrades to green space infrastructure in the country. Green spaces like parks provide many people, including communities of color, most affected by the climate crisis from increasingly high temperatures and can alleviate the harmful so-called urban heat island effect that makes neighborhoods without green space dangerously hot. The Interior Department has erased a controversial Trump administration legal opinion that concluded that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act covered only intentional killing or injuring of birds. The action helps restore migratory bird protections. The reasoning and basis behind the Trump ruling were soundly rejected in federal court, the Department of the Interior said in a statement, adding that it, quote, overturned decades of bipartisan and international consensus and allowed industry to kill birds with impunity, end quote. The Trump administration appealed last October, but the Biden administration subsequently dropped the appeal, quote, the Biden administration is doing the right thing by refusing to defend the prior administration's illegal and ecologically disastrous interpretation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, one of the nation's bedrock conservation laws, end quote, said Eric Glitzenstein, Director of Litigation at the Center for Biological Diversity. Fracking, the body burden of living near fracking, a report published recently in Environmental Health News, is a damning analysis of what it's like to live near fracking sites in western Pennsylvania. The findings come from five families' participation in a pilot study on the chemical emissions commonly found near fracking sites. According to Sandra Steingraber, a biologist and member of Concerned Health Professionals of New York, an organization that has long called attention to the hazards of fracking, Quote, considered together with the results of previous studies, the findings of this multi-part investigation serve as a powerful moral indictment of the Pennsylvania Department of Public Health, which has long privileged gas industry interests over protecting the health of Pennsylvania residents. Pennsylvania's children should not be used as laboratory rats in an uncontrolled experiment involving toxic exposures, end quote. Concerned Health Professionals of New York is calling for a quick, thorough phase-out of fracking. Scientists analyzing the data from the families participating in the study found that children living near fracking wells have body tissue levels of poisonous chemicals 91 times as high as those in the average American. Chemicals in drinking water and air samples consisted of benzene, a carcinogen, and many others. 
Many environmentalists and scientists who supported Joe Biden's run for president also criticized him on the campaign trail for his refusal to support a national ban on fracking. Homestead Temporary Shelter in Homestead, Florida, is a detention center for migrant children located on a Superfund site. Superfund sites are areas highly contaminated with hazardous waste from previous industries. Homestead is so polluted that the federal government has deemed it unfit for people to live on. The Obama administration opened the facility in 2016, and it was then the largest U.S. detention center for unaccompanied minors and once housed 3,200 children. In August of that year, the facility shut down because of public pressure and a lessening need for it. The Biden administration is planning to reopen Homestead under a new name, the Biscayne Influx Care Facility, to shelter the increasing number of Central American migrant children arriving at the southern U.S. border. Human rights advocates claim that opening Biscayne should be illegal because it's located on the Homestead Air Force Base Superfund site. The land contains arsenic, lead, and mercury, which cause immune problems and exacerbate children's risk of cancer. The nonprofit environmental law firm Earth Justice has also voiced concerns about the presence of pesticides and semi-volatile and volatile organic compounds in the groundwater around the center. A report from another organization pointed out that the center is near an air reserve base where fighter planes create noise that exceeds the limit considered acceptable for people's homes. Homestead isn't the only migrant detention center that has been proposed or built on a Superfund site. Although some Superfund sites have been approved for residences, Homestead Air Force Base has not. Although many people live in detention centers and prisons, government agencies don't consider them residences, so those agencies are housing thousands of people on contaminated land in detention centers and for-profit prisons. New data from a Norwegian nonprofit is generating fresh concerns about humanity's destruction of the natural world, revealing Monday that people have ravaged about two-thirds of original tropical rainforest cover globally. The Rainforest Foundation Norway analysis found that human activities, including logging and land use changes, often for farming, have destroyed 34% of old-growth tropical forests and degraded 30% worldwide. Degraded forests are those that are partly destroyed or fully wiped out but replaced by more recent growth. The group's definition of intact forest considered too strict by some experts, includes only areas that are at least 193 square miles. Trees and biodiversity are at greater risk in smaller ones. The findings, reported by Reuters, show that over half of the destruction since 2002 has been in the Amazon and neighboring rainforests. Deforestation in South America particularly in Brazil, home to the majority of the Amazon, has caused recent alarm given the role of rainforests in trapping carbon. The group found that after South American rainforests, the top deforestation hot zones since 2002 have been Southeast Asian islands, where trees have been cleared for palm oil plantations, followed by Central Africa, specifically around the Congo River Basin, where forest loss results from agriculture and logging.
And now for our feature, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the McCabe confirmation hearing. An Indiana University professor selected to become the number two official at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency faced contentious questioning from senators during her first confirmation hearing. Janet McCabe, professor of practice at IU's McKinney School of Law and director of IU's Environmental Resilience Institute, was nominated by the Biden administration to serve as deputy administrator of the EPA. She testified alongside Brenda Mallory, President Joe Biden's pick to lead the White House Council on Environmental Quality during a hearing of the U.S. Senate's Committee on Environment and Public Works. McCabe previously served in the EPA during the Obama administration as acting assistant administrator for the Office of Air and Radiation. It is so humbling that President Biden has nominated me to serve as deputy administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. And if confirmed, it will be a tremendous honor to return to the agency and to work collaboratively with you, with EPA's many partners and the wonderful EPA staff to protect the health of American families, communities and our environment. Before joining the EPA, McCabe was executive director of Improving Kids Environment, Inc., a children's environmental health advocacy group based in Indianapolis, and worked at the Indiana Department of Environmental Management from 1993 to 2005. McCabe told the senators that her experiences in her adopted home of Indiana shaped her commitment to creating healthier communities for all Americans. Since the start of my career, I've had the privilege to contribute to creating healthier, more livable communities for all Americans. I learned early on how poor air quality can worsen asthma and other respiratory problems, leading to higher medical bills, missed days of school and work, and an overall diminished quality of life. Air pollution is connected with heart disease, cancer, and birth defects. It shortens lives. These and other public health issues facing our fellow Americans have motivated my work. McCabe told senators she would focus on the critical partnership between the EPA and individual states in order to confront problems like air pollution, PFAS contamination, and other contamination problems. This relationship requires openness, transparency, flexibility, and a willingness to listen, even if there are times when we do not agree. Being open and willing to listen to all stakeholders is how EPA should be doing its business. And if I'm confirmed, I would be guided by a commitment to fostering open dialogue and giving as many as possible a seat at the table. McCabe faced tough questions from Republican senators about environmental executive orders and one of her accomplishments during the Obama administration, the Clean Power Plan, a regulation that placed the first national standards on carbon pollution emitted from power plants. McCabe was one of the architects of the Clean Power Plan, along with current National Climate Advisor and former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy and Joseph Goffman, Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator for EPA's Office of Air and Radiation. The plan was praised by environmental and health advocacy groups, but reviled by conservative groups and fossil fuel-dependent state legislators across the country. Several states sued to stop the CPP from being implemented, and the U.S. Supreme Court issued a stay, putting the law in limbo. The plan was eventually repealed and replaced by the Trump administration's Affordable Clean Energy Rule, an attempt to give states more power over emissions regulations. A federal court eventually scrapped the ACE rule, and the Biden administration said it would not revive the Clean Power Plan. Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota told McCabe that she faced an uphill battle because of her Clean Power Plan past and a lack of transparency and stakeholder interaction forming the plan. McCabe said she understood the senator's frustration, but that the CPP was a result of a lot of outreach. I I understand your position and what you're saying. Um, uh, I 
I, uh, I have to tell you that uh, when, when I was working at EP, EPA before, um, I, I was absolutely sincere in my commitment to involve everybody. And I, and I know that, uh, that there are many who disagreed with the outcome of that rule. Um, but in terms of listening to people and, and, and hearing people and taking um, everybody's perspective into account, uh, we certainly did that in the lengthy process that we went through on the clean power plan. Um, the, the final rule, as, as I said a minute ago, the rule was about carbon emissions. And my state is also a state uh, with a lot of fossil energy. And it had a, a large reduction expectation as well. But what we tried to do in that rule was build a very flexible approach. And we talked we talked for hours and hours with state officials about how to do this in a way to provide flexibility so that the, 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 the goal of the rule, which was to reduce carbon emissions, could be done in the most flexible way, giving states as many options as possible um, to, to work together, to work internally, to work with other states all across the country uh, to, to make that happen. And I think we've had success in this country with programs like the Acid Rain Program, um, uh, in, in uh, allowing flexible approaches to do these things affordably. McCabe has the support of nine former deputy administrators who served during Republican and Democratic administrations, over 200 former EPA employees, and many environmental groups. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. IU is launching a photo scavenger hunt as a way to add pictures to its plant directory. Each of Indiana's 2,700 plant species has a species page in the Golden Key online identification tool that people can use to identify an unknown plant. If you are interested in participating in the 2021 Indiana Plant Photographic Scavenger Hunt, you can go to herbarium.bio.indiana.edu. There will be a woodcock walk at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, March 20th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Take this opportunity to watch the American woodcock perform its springtime ritual called the Sky Dance. Timberdoodling is what this springtime display is called. The event involves light walking and perhaps muddy conditions. Registration is required. Go to indianaaudubon.org slash event slash good dash pond dash woodcock dash field dash trip. The Sassafras Audubon Society wants to introduce you to the world of bird watching for a Birding 101 program at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, March 20th from 10 a.m. to noon. Space is limited for this fun free program. You must register at president at sassafrasaudubon.org. Spring Mill State Park is offering a step into spring hike on Sunday, March 21st from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Join Anthony for a rugged two-mile hike on Trail 4. You will enjoy looking for all the signs of spring while learning about the history of Spring Mill State Park. There will be an amphibian outing at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, March 26, from 6 to 8 p.m. Friends from the Hoosier Herpetological Society will take you on an adventure to the State House Quarry, where you will flip logs and explore an amphibian mating pond. Don't forget your flashlight. 
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.